Okay. Well, we are in a series called The Returning King. What we're doing is we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. It is, uh, it's been a three-year journey so far. And uh, we're, we're looking now at the final days of Jesus' life. We're looking at these, this last week or so of his life before he's crucified and then risen. And Jesus is on a collision course with the religious establishment. I don't know if you've ever realized you've been on a collision course in a relationship. Maybe you decided to avert disaster. Jesus is going headlong after it. He is not diverted in any way. He is on a collision course with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And so he is He's actually just entered Jerusalem, he came in, rolling in on a donkey, right, which is a way to symbolically say, I'm a king coming in peace and in humility. Now, all four Gospels attest to this story. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and John all talk about how Jesus is uh, received with palm branches. I threw Dave off last week, I was wrong about that, so Bible nerds make mistakes. Read your Bibles, make sure we're right. Um, and... Uh, and anyway, we, we saw that Jesus came into the temple and he started driving out folks who are ripping off the worshipers. Jesus is throwing down on the religious establishment and what uh, is called the, the cleansing of the temple. Now, the Jewish rulers in this part of the gospel story are hacked. They're done with Jesus, and they are ready for him to be arrested, and they want to kill him, Luke tells us. But the people are preventing them. So what we have is a story with mounting tension between Jesus, his words, and his actions, and the religious uh, leadership of the day. And so we get into uh, the story today. Luke chapter 20, verse 1. Take a look at this with me. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Who gave you this authority? So, in light of Jesus' confrontation, with the powers that be and the establishment of the religious elite in the temple, they have a question, a fair question, right? He's been walking around like he owns the place, and they have a fair question. What gives you the authority to walk around like you own the place? Who authorizes your behavior here? All right? Well, he replies. Jesus says, I'll also ask you a question. Okay, look, if you ask Jesus a question and he responds, I've got a question for you, you know you have been going down the wrong track, right? <laughs> Get ready, right? I love this. Ah, I'll ask you a question, he says. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Hmm. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask us, why didn't you believe him? Right? And what did John say back in Luke chapter 3? Right? That this Jesus was the Messiah. That Jesus was God coming to rescue the people as king. So, if we say John, they'll say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. Huh. So they answered, we don't know. 
Right? We don't know. So Jesus responds with a question to their question. It's a common rabbinical practice. It was also a way to kind of assert authority in a conversation and put the responsibility of a decision back on them. Who authorizes you, Jesus? What gives you authority to walk around like you own the temple? Jesus says, well, what about John the Baptist? Was he authorized by heaven or was he authorized by humans? Was his authority source above or below? It was a stumper. It was a showstopper. And the religious leaders knew it. They said, oh, no, if we say John the Baptist was sent from heaven, then we're stuck because we're not believing John's message. If we say he was just uh, he derived his authority from humans, then we're going to get crushed because all the people know that our group, the Pharisees, even went out to be baptized by him. Right? We look stupid. Right? They knew they were stumped. And so here's the deal. It is a very understandable thing to question authority. In fact, I think it's a wise thing these days to question authority in the sense that we live in a world where, to state the obvious, authority is abused. Authority is abused regularly. It seems like every news article I got this week was an example of abuse of authority. And so... The abuse, though, of something like authority doesn't mean we need to discard the proper use of authority. And so the question the text begins to ask is, who gets to exercise proper authority in our lives? Who gets to exercise proper, not abusive, authority in our lives? Now, when you have kids, uh, they will outsmart you, and this has already happened in our lives, uh, and every kid makes you question all of your parenting strategies, right? You go, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to do, right? And so, like, our youngest is amazing. She's sweet and she's funny, and she's, but she's smart, and she's outsmarted us. And so many times, Lauren and I are like, back to the drawing board, erase it all. What's our strategy? And one of the things that we've learned to do when we think, you know, she's three and a half, so she has a tendency to go, you know, in her own way. So do you at like 70 and a half, but, uh, right, we, we all have this tendency. And so we throw this little speed bump in front of her and we say, hey, uh, Eloise, who's in charge, right? It's this little analytical question that we hope makes her think for a second. Who's in charge? And she has her answer, like mommy and daddy and Jesus, right? Like it's actually more like daddy and then mommy and then Jesus, but, uh, right. And she, she throws this out. She knows, and it kind of causes her to rethink her motivations and her behaviors and all this kind of stuff and usually works. Well, this Friday, I was talking to Eloise and I said, hey, who's in charge? And she looked right at me and said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yes, you do. Right? Like, who's in charge? And so, you know, I just love it. Like, she's just like, I don't know. What's funny to me is these religious leaders, these grown-up men, are answering Jesus like a three and a half year old girl. I don't know. I don't know who's in charge. Right? So Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. I love Jesus's response to them. <laughs> like you, you want to answer my question? I won't answer your question, at least not directly. Why? Because he reads beneath the surface of their question. He sees that they're trying to trap him. They're trying to avoid his rule as king. And so here's what I want to draw out here, that Jesus does not engage our smoke screens and our false pretenses. 
He won't have any of our false pretenses. He sees right through our religious language. He sees right through our word games. If you want to engage Jesus, he will be engaged by sincerity and honesty. Otherwise, all he's going to try to do is show you how false you're being so that he can actually engage you in honesty. And this is exactly what he does. See, he doesn't answer their question directly. Instead, he answers their question with a story. How does Jesus reveal to us our inner motivations? How does he show us our falsehood? How does he uncover the the repressed inner longings that we have that we don't even realize ourselves? He tells parables. Listen to this. In response, he says, he went on, Luke says, to tell this parable. A man planted a vineyard. He rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but they also beat and treated shamefully. Or that one also, sorry, they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. Verse 12. He sent still a third, and they wounded him, literally traumatized him, and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. They conspired. Ah, this is the heir, they said. Let's kill him. And then the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid, right? May it never be. Jesus looked directly at them. He said, and what is the meaning of of that which is written, and he quotes Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. This is God's word. How does his parable peel back and uncover the answer to the religious leader's question about Jesus' authority? How does this parable reveal what's really happening under the surface of the human heart? You see, the inability of the Pharisees to answer Jesus' question is indicative of something that the Bible says is true of every one of us. And that's this, that there is a deep alienation between us and our creator God. That there's a deep attitude inside every human heart that is ultimately hostile to him. It doesn't want God to be God. It doesn't want to deal with God at all, let alone dealing with God on God's terms. So what I want to do this morning for the rest of our time together is I want to look at this parable from the vantage point of each relationship within the parable. I, I believe this parable asks us lots of questions, and I just want, I want to draw out three questions this morning that this parable puts to us as the hearers of the word. 
Um, so this parable, it's a parable about an owner. He, he goes out and he purchases land. He purchases a, a, a vineyard. Has, it, has anybody been to a vineyard before? Ever go to wine country here in Oregon and walk through the vine? It's beautiful, isn't it? And it's like this great, great, beautiful environment. And so he buys a vineyard and he prepares the vineyard. He cultivates the land, but then he goes away, right? He, he goes on vacation or he goes to manage one of his other bit. We don't know. He goes away. And what do you do if you want your place to thrive while you're away? You hire out hired hands, right? You hire out tenants, tenant farmers. And so these guys are responsible to keep the land, to cultivate it by stewarding the investment of the owner, right? They're hired hands to take care of his investment. What's their responsibility then to him? Well, since it's the owner's capital, it's the owner's risk, right? Uh, They get their pay, but all the fruit of the vineyard is his, right? They get their pay to tend the vineyard, right? But they have to do it in whatever way the owner deems fit. And the fruit is rightfully his. They have to take care of all of his things by his word and for his profit, okay? Think about that. They have to take care of his things by his word and for his profit. They're tenants, not owners. Think about that. They can't do whatever they want. With his property, can they? they? They can't just go farm it however they want, and they can't do whatever they want with the fruit. They get their share, right? They get their wage, but the profit goes to the owner, right? The fruit of the vine belongs to him. So it's by his word and it's for his profit. Maybe you are beginning to see how this might be personally relevant to you. Before we get there, let me just. Uh, walk you through some of the ways that Jesus' first hearers would have picked up what Jesus was saying. You see, um, there's some dots Jesus is connecting between the Old Testament story of Israel and his own person and his own action. And so all the scholars agree that this parable is a direct echo of Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5 is this beautiful song of the vineyard, and it's actually a tragedy. All right, and it's song of the vineyard you see in Isaiah where God is concerned with his people and he, he says, I, I, uh, I will sing the song of my, my, this vineyard, right? That my beloved, uh, I gave this vineyard to my beloved. And, uh, and so he depicts Israel. God depicts Israel as a great vineyard. And, and he describes what he did for this vineyard. He cleared it of stones. He, he, built a wine press and a watchtower and he cultivated and he put a hedge around it, which is if you're ever praying with Christians and you hear somebody pray like, we pray a hedge of protection, that's probably coming from here, though we don't, they probably don't know that it's coming from here because if you're looking for protection, like we can do all do better than hedges. But um, anyway, the point here is that he did everything for this vineyard to succeed. And so God is looking to the vineyard for fruit and it's on this fertile hillside and he realizes that instead of a choice crop, it is producing bitter fruit. It's producing stinking things, literally. And so he says this in verse 7, the vineyard of Yahweh Almighty is the nation of Israel. The people of Judah are the vines he delighted in and he looked for justice. In Hebrew, it's mishpat. But there's this wordplay. Instead of mishpat, he saw mizpah, 
bloodshed. I looked for tzedakah, righteousness, but instead I saw seakah, the cries of distress. And so this vineyard, Israel, the people of God, was supposed to produce the fruit of justice and righteousness. And instead it was producing bloodshed and cries of distress. The result, God removes its protection, its hedge, its, and it's going to become a ruin. And ultimately, Isaiah foretells the story of the great empire of Babylon coming in and taking the people off to exile, and the vineyard then becomes a wasteland. And it bears thorns and thistles like the ground after Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. And so Jesus is picking up this vineyard imagery And he's using it to describe the relationship of Israel's leaders to God. Except this time, it's not bad fruit, it's a hostile takeover that's happened. And Jesus, in one simple parable, retells the entire story of Israel. And he says, you are like the tenants who refuse the owner what is rightfully his. And so at the root, Jesus is saying, you're hateful. And you're spiteful and you're resentful of the owner himself. And Luke is saying, look, you, you leaders are like this. You are this way. And the leaders know Jesus is talking about them. And so what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with us? I mean, we're not Israel, but you have a life, don't you? You have a life. You have your story. You have your talents. You have your skills that you've honed. You have intelligence. You have a social life. You have an emotional life. You have a sexuality. You have creativity. You have vocation and work. You have resources like time and energy and money. The question is, and this parable is asking us, do you view your life from the lens of a tenant or from the lens of an owner? Are you looking at your life and you're saying, you know, it's all mine. This is my life, right? See, this parable is saying we have to learn to live like tenants and not live like owners and to think of ourselves instead as tenant farmers rather than the owners. And Jesus is saying, look, you can't look at your life, you can't look at your possessions, you can't look at your energy and your resources and your time and think that you're the owner of them. It's nuts, right? But it's exactly what the tenant farmers do. Right? They, they begin acting like they're the owners and they kick out the messengers and they refuse their responsibility to work under the owner's word and for his profit. And this is essentially what the Bible says is what is true of all of us. We look at our lives and our stuff and we say, yeah, I don't want to live like a steward. I want to live like the owner. And this is the message the world's telling you all the time, isn't it? The world's saying to you, look, you're the owner of your life. You set the agenda. You determine the values. You do whatever makes you happy. And by the way, whatever makes you happy is a moving target. So be careful and be ready to be exhausted. That's what everything is about. The flow and the current of our culture is about ourselves living as owners every self-help book will say you can do it you're the owner of your life just try really hard right and we end up at the end looking like Gollum from lord of the rings it's mine my only my precious right and that's how we live our lives it's the owners and so jesus is saying look you have to deal with the way you think about your life you have to deal with this tenant owner relationship If you're going to deal honestly with life, you have to deal with that idea. You have to deal with that identity. 
And so there's two paths at this point. You can choose path A, which is to say, forget it. I'm going my own way. I'm the owner of my life. Thank you very much. Or you can say, okay, I get it. I'm a tenant and I need to adjust my life accordingly, right? To live under his word and for his profit. If you say, on one hand though, that you're the owner, if you go that route and you say, I'm the owner, then I would encourage you to be logically consistent, right? Be logically consistent with it and face the utter meaninglessness of your life as the owner. Okay? Hang with me. Uh, in the last century, or before the last century, Friedrich Nietzsche, right, the crazy German, right, uh, is a great philosopher, I mean, in the sense of he was a very popular philosopher, who said essentially this, look, it makes no difference whether you choose a life of compassion, though that's foolishness, or a life of genocide. You can be, genocide, you can be a genocidal maniac or compassionate, it makes no difference, there's no God, so whatever you do, it doesn't really matter. Right? He says, you might as well go ahead and get power because in a zillion years from now, the sun's going to burn out and nobody's going to remember anything you ever did. So go for it. Right? Life, he says, is meaningless. Right? And so all of you who are following a God, you're, you know, you're deluded. Right? And the rest of you who aren't following a God, you have to face the meaninglessness of life, he says. Right? And so if you're the owner, you have to be logically consistent and you have to recognize how incredibly lonely and meaningless your existence really is. Right? It doesn't mean anything at all. Why? Because if everybody's the owner and everybody determines their own meaning, there really is no meaning. Right? We have to be logically consistent. And so if you want to be an owner, you have to face that. You have to face the fact that your life is, that the meaning of your life is an illusion. I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but it's true. Okay. Now, most of us don't live that way. Most of us don't want to go full bore into, you know, the nihilistic way of life. And so uh, most of us don't live that way. Instead, we live with these competing constructs at work in us. Construct one is, on one hand, I know I'm a tenant, right? I know ultimately I'm like kind of accountable and oh, I don't want to deal with it. Construct number two is I hate that, right? I know I'm a tenant, but I hate it. We know, we know there's an owner but we hate it, right? Because what, where, where did we get the idea of justice and compassion and goodness to begin with, right? It came from somewhere. Where did we get the idea of good? And where did we get the idea of fair and just? And so, you know, most of us don't live this way. Instead, we live with these competing uh, realities, right? If we're really honest, we realize we despise the owner. We hate living under anyone else's word for anyone else's profit. There's a great... Um, uh, the great illustration of this, or at least I hope it works as an illustration of this if you're having trouble following. Remember Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Okay. So, in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it's a story about these high school kids who take a day off. And, uh, and so Ferris is trying to get his friends to have some fun with him. And, uh, and so they have this whole kind of way of faking out Principal Rooney. Uh, to make sure that they get excused from school and stuff. And so uh, Ferris's friend Cameron hates his dad. He despises his dad because his dad loves his antique Ferrari more than he loves Cameron. Remember this? And so Cameron uh, like concocts his plan with Ferris to like borrow the Ferrari. And so they take out the Ferrari, they skip school, and they go for an epic joyride through the streets of Chicago. They feign ownership. They pretend like they are Ferrari owners instead of high school kids. Right? Remember this moment? Right? This is great. Um, and so they suppress the reality that they're high school kids merely borrowing the car. They suppress the fact that they're tenants and pretend that they're the owners. 
And they even have this plan, right, where they're going to jack up the back of the car and they're going to run it in reverse and they think that they're going to be able to roll back the mileage so dad never finds out that they have been driving the car all over the city. And in fact, the parking lot attendants took the car like for miles and miles. And, and I love it. They plan to dupe their dad, but it doesn't work. And the car ends up careening off of a ravine and gets totaled. And Cameron has to face his dad. He has to face the music. So what about you? What about you today? Do you have any places where you're pretending to be the owner? Have any places where you're, you're pretending to be the owner of your life and you hope maybe I can roll back the mileage when I have to turn this life in and say, no, no, I was living as a tenant, really. I never stole the car. I never, I, I never did what I wanted to do without coming under the authority of the one in whose image I'm made. you have any places in your life today where you're saying, oh, yep, I'm living as an owner. I need to trade in my identity to be a tenant identity. See, one thing about owners too, by the way, one thing about owners is they, they have to assume all the responsibility. You own a restaurant, the profits are yours, and so are the losses. You own a house, the furnace goes out, It's on you, bro, right? That's why we rent. Actually, I mean, it's probably not why we rent, but uh, but the, the question is, how much burden are you carrying today? Are you carrying the burdens of an owner? Are you living in the freedom of a tenant? See, on one hand, we think that the freest way to live is as the owner, but the irony, the irony is that the freest way we can live is as a tenant. So the question the parable asks you is, are you the tenant or are you the owner of your life? If the owner, then you have to deal with the burden and you have to deal with its meaninglessness. But if you are the tenant, then you have to deal with the responsibility and the submission that comes with that to live according to the owner's word and for his profit. Second question this parable asks us is what's our relationship with the messengers? See, the first point's challenging. There's this realization that under the surface, the human heart on its own, it hates God. It pushes out him out to be a, our own owner. But the second point is loaded with the mercy of a God who is patient with people like that. Um, some of you are landlords. And what would you do if your tenant didn't pay rent and then beat you up when you asked for it? Sayonara, buddy. Right? Cops are coming, like you're rolling in with a tank. If you could get your hands on one, how does God deal with it? Patiently, persistently, messenger after messenger after messenger. God does not just give us one chance, I do not believe. I believe God is a God who keeps sending chances. He keeps sending messengers into your life. Look at the patience of God to send messenger after messenger. And this is something, it, go, you could write down Jer- Jeremiah 7, 25 and 26. It's this place where Jeremiah says, this is, this is you, Israel, from the time you've left Egypt until now, I've sent my servant the prophets, and again and again, you do not listen, you do not heed, 
you are stiff-necked. And so God patiently and persistently sends his messengers. He does not leave himself without witness in the world. But broaden this out to your own life. Think about the messengers that God has sent in your life. What do they have to tell you? You're not the owner, right? They come and they say, you're not the owner. And by the way, right, I'm here to shatter the illusion that you are independent and in control of your life. I want to show you your true condition. That's what the messengers come to say. And so God, I think, in his many chances, he sends parents. Some of you have had parents who have been that messenger. You have had friends, potentially. They live this different story in front of you, and it's caused you to question what you've built your life on. They ask you good questions, and they've loved you in a way that's caused you to to hear God. Others of you, uh, it's, it's been life experiences. God has allowed things to happen to us to show us how life is not under our control. Anybody have one of those going on right now? <laughs> oh, life is not something I control. Life's constantly telling you you're not in control. Have you noticed? Like it's always something. This is broken or that's broken or this is hard or I can't deal, right? And we always have opportunities to see that we are actually anything but the owners of life. We are powerless over a vast amount of our lives where we're born, our family, our health, our abilities, our money. So many things are outside of our abilities. And so here's this question today. Are you listening to the messengers? Are you heeding the messengers? Are you making the most of the chances that are being given to you? Because let me tell you, friends, you do not know when it is the last messenger. You do not know when it is the last chance to respond to his loving mercy that sends messengers to say, you're not the owner. Come be in relationship with me and I will give you life. You don't know. So so be a person who listens to the messengers. With life circumstances maybe that are infuriating you are maybe not so much intrusions on your agenda as they are possible messengers that intend to draw you into relationship and dependence on the true owner of the true vineyard. Are you receiving the messengers? Are you receiving them loud and clear? What does he want to say to you? Are you softening your desire to be the owner? surrendering to him last question the parable asks is this what's your relationship to the son right there's this beloved son in the parable what's your relationship to him see here's the place in the story where jesus answers the initial questions of the religious leaders where did you get your authority and jesus says from the owner of the vineyard He says, my authority is that I'm sent by the vineyard owner. I'm the beloved son of Isaiah 5. I'm God's son promised to be king in 2 Samuel 7. My authority, he says, is from heaven. Listen to the story. Right? Why why is Jesus acting like he owns the place? Because he has every right to challenge the temple and its leaders because he is the reason for it all. And yet the story reveals their posture to him. What's their posture? Ah, here's, here's the son. He's the heir. Let's kill him and get the inheritance. What does it say, friends, about the human condition? What does it say about the human condition that when God comes in utter vulnerability, the first thing we do is execute him? 
What's that say about humanity? See, it reveals that the underlying problem we've been talking about all morning, this entire time, is that deep down we're hostile to God. We don't want Him to be God. We prefer to be God in His place. The Bible describes this natural human state, apart from the saving, intervening help of God, as the flesh. Romans 8, Paul says that the mind governed by the flesh, the mind on its own, unhelped by God, is death, he says. It's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so, Paul says. Have you seen that? See, the evidence, if you need evidence, is that the one time God shows up in human form, our hostility erupts and we kill him. And yet it is by God's sovereign design. It doesn't thwart his plan. He has resurrection in mind all the way through. So without help from the outside, without help, we will keep on hating him. We will keep on rejecting him and his messengers and pushing him out of what is rightfully his. So here's the thing this morning. If you're beginning to realize that this is you, if you're listening to the parable of Jesus and you're beginning to admit to yourself that there's a hostility under the surface of our hearts, that's that's a first step in becoming a Christian. We are grounded as gospel people and the news that we have a hostility problem. But it doesn't stop there, right? Because God has done something about it. God has done something about it. Christian people are willing to admit that they are hostile to God. So what do you do? Well, first of all, you have to be honest. You have to be honest about what's happening in your life spiritually. You have to be real. Uh, Too often we stay away from God under the pretense of some kind of smokescreen, some intellectual objection. I love uh, Aldous Huxley. He was a parallel to John F. Kennedy and um, C.S. Lewis, a philosopher, someone with amazing intellect. Could have used a smokescreen. This is what he says. I didn't want the universe to have meaning. I wanted there not to be a God. Why? Because I wanted to sleep with whomever I wanted. At least he's honest about his spiritual condition. He's honest about his reasons of unbelief. It's because he didn't want to. On the flip side, religious folks have a very difficult time with this, right? We have a very difficult time admitting our underlying spiritual issues. Some of you have heard me use this quote before. It's from Flannery O'Connor's novel, Wise Blood. She has this character named Hayes Motes who's kind of despicable. And he has this, uh, there's this, this line that says, he had this dark, nameless conviction that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. We can avoid Jesus in our goodness, friends, not just our badness. See, it's that I want to keep away from anything that makes me realize I'm in need of grace. Right? Uh, this is why religious folks can be so smug and so self-confident, because uh, they do their God-hating under the guise of God-devotion. Maybe that's you today, and you've been like, I've lived my whole life under God-devotion. But has it been a flow of love that's come from his love for you, or is it to prove something? You see, uh, so often, those of us who resort to this kind of moralistic way of life, our faith is not in the vicarious death of Jesus in our place, it's in our own goodness. And that is a poison to us spiritually. So what do we do with all this? Where's the good news? You're like, this is a sermon and so far you've just told me I hate God. Okay, whoa, where is this going? All right, let me tell you where it's going. 
Where's the good news here? It's right here at the end. How can we possibly respond to this parable? First of all, we cannot avoid the ownership question of our life. We can't avoid it. We have to deal with the tenant ownership question. We cannot avoid the question of our response to God and his continual mercy of sending messengers into our lives. But last of all, the question that answers how we're going to deal with the first two questions is what is my attitude toward the Son? What's my attitude towards the Son? How am I postured toward Jesus? Because that will answer the other two questions. There's this deep irony in the parable where the the farmers say, ah, the heir, let's kill him and his inheritance will be ours. And it's ironic because in one sense, the rejection of the son leads to his, the dispersion of his life and inheritance to others, right? It's in his death that what is his becomes available to us. His death becomes the means through which we move from enemies to friends and heirs. Anyone who will accept him now stands to receive his inheritance. So Christians are are people who on one hand say, I have hostility, I I have enmity between God, but because of Jesus, because of what he's done, I no longer have that there, right? Because Jesus has been treated like the enemy I am, I can be forgiven and treated as the son he is. That's what gospel confidence means. That's what faith in Jesus means. It means, well, my true spiritual condition, apart from his saving help, is hostility. What I have in Jesus is someone who has been treated as I I should be, as an enemy, so that I can be treated as his true child, his son, his daughter. Not only was the son killed in our place, The Word of God says that the hostility that exists between us was killed too. Paul says this in Ephesians 2.16 when he describes the hostility that exists between Jew and Gentile and all humanity and God. And he says the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed in Jesus' flesh. Irenaeus, the early church father, says that he has become what we are so that in him we might become what he is. He became sin so that... In him, we might become the righteousness of God. So when you begin to grasp, friends, that the cross of Jesus has accomplished the death of hostility and the reconciliation of you to God, when you begin to accept what he's done, it melts your heart. It melts the hostility away in a moment because it's the love of God that makes his enemies into sons and daughters. And it's the love of God that melts our hearts And causes us to have a new heart and a new desire to love God and the things God loves. So Christians then are people who begin the work of putting aside all those old hostilities that we have made into habits. All those old hostilities that have become ingrained and we have been trained to live in. And we begin to live lives that are reconciled. And it's a process and it takes time. And it's why each week when we take communion, it's an opportunity to give a focus to the son who's given his life freely for us. It's his sacrifice that creates a relationship. That he gave his life to kill the enmity and hostility between us. And so it's in that moment that you're able to say, yes, I'm reminded again that I'm a tenant. And I recognize the cost that he went to to bring me into relationship with him. You see, Jesus paid the eviction notice that we were due. He paid it. And he absorbed the wickedness that exists in us. And so Luke 
is impressing on us a decision. You see, at the beginning of his gospel, chapter 4 and 5, Luke's saying stuff and sharing stories where people are like, oh, wow, who is this that forgives sins? It's this question about Jesus. Now at the end of the gospel, in chapter 20, it's not, not an impression of a decision. It's a forced decision. We can no longer look at Jesus and say, well, I don't know. He says, you have to make a decision. Who is he? Right? Who is this Jesus? And Jesus interprets all this and he says, what about the scripture? Psalm 118, it says, now the, the, the uh, chief cornerstone has been rejected, right? But the, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What's he saying? He's using imagery out of the Psalms to describe himself. And a cornerstone is that great, great foundational piece that holds two walls together, that bears the weight of the building. And he's saying, look, I am either your foundation or I am your destruction. I am either the foundation on which you build your life or you will end up crushed without building your life on something solid. I am trying here, friends, to motivate you, not to scare you, but to draw you into the seriousness of the decision about Jesus and who he is and what he has done. See, you have to take him seriously. Are you the owner or is he? And if he is the owner, will you yield to that? Will you make a decision today to build your life, not on the foundation of your effort, not on the foundation of your approval from peers, but on the approval of the, the God of heaven who looks at you through the merit of his son Jesus, who sees that hostility put to death and Jesus on the cross, will you make a decision today to build your life on the foundation of his finished work? Not on your ongoing work, but on his finished work. Because no other foundation can hold your life together the way the foundation of his finished work can hold your life together. Will you decide today to stop pushing away the messengers? To stop saying, yeah, later, yeah, later. I'll roll back the mileage plan. It doesn't work. Instead, Jesus offers you in his patience and his mercy a relationship of love, of utter forgiveness based on what he's done. He says, will you let me be your foundation? Because if not, it will lead to you being crushed apart from me. Your life cannot bear it. You are not wired to be an owner. You cannot handle it. Will you make that decision today? If you're here today and you sense that the Spirit of God is saying, you're not the owner. Come be the tenant. Live your life at my word and for my profit. Do so on the foundation of my truth and love and free grace. Where are you today? Make a decision today. Would you make a decision today? Say, I'm not going to leave here. Not, I don't know when I'm going to get another message. I don't know when I'm going to have another chance. But I know today, God in his mercy has extended me one more time to be reconciled to him, to allow the hostility that exists in my heart to be put to death. When I say, God, I have hostility in my life towards you. And I look to your son, Jesus, to reconcile me to you. I look to your son, Jesus, and what he has done for me. I put all my confidence on the foundation of his act of self-giving love. And I will build my life on that foundation, putting to death the rest of the hostilities that I have grown accustomed to living in. Is that you today? Would you, if that's you here today, would you just shoot your hand up and say, I am choosing today. I'm choosing to decide to build my life on that foundation. If that is you, be about it and make it known.
God in his mercy says, yes, yes, you are in my kingdom, my child. You have my inheritance freely given, which is eternal life and relationship in the kingdom. Friends, make the decision. We're going to come to the Lord's table now to come and receive communion. And if today you are a person who says, I have made that decision, I live on the merit of Jesus, if you are a Christ follower, if he is Lord of your life, come to the table and say, yes, I nourish myself on the good news. I nourish my heart and my spirituality all on the fact of his free grace and what he's done. It's a way, again, to say I'm putting aside all the old hostilities and I'm living on the foundation of Jesus. If you today decided for the first time, I am going to follow Jesus, I'm going to quit trying to be an owner, quit trying to be an owner, by the way, quit it. It's not going anywhere good. Live as a tenant. If you have decided today, I will live as the tenant to God Almighty and come and take communion as a way of saying, I declare that faith for me today. It's personal. His gift of eternal life is mine. Make that known. The band's going to lead us in worship. Let me pray for us. Father, today I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that in this room your spirit is doing something. That in this room your spirit's working on each one of us. That each one of us has grown accustomed to some hostilities. We pray that your spirit would do a work of knocking them out, putting them aside. Whether they're hostilities between us and others or hostilities between us and you, you have come to absorb it, to take it on, to take on all that is needed to bring about reconciliation in your one body, Jesus, the God-man, God in the flesh. Believe Paul's words that the law weakened by the flesh, God accomplished the law that was weakened by the flesh by taking on the punishment in his own body so that we might become the ones who fulfilled the righteous requirement of it because he's absorbed the penalty. So, Lord, we love you. We pray for each person today who's responding to you in faith, who's trusting you today, that they would hear your words calling them son or daughter, heir, one who belongs, one who is forgiven, one who is free, one who is embraced, not because of their goodness, but because of yours, because of your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.